0: We're going to mainly be in Acts 15. That's where we're going to be. Uh, a couple of the references, but you can you can turn there on your phones or in your Bibles because that's where we're going to going to be talking this morning. And um, so we had the quote up during communion to remind you that our faith is anchored in a historical fact that happened one weekend: Jesus died and rose again. And it's good to remember that we also have a future. So. These words, um, angels sing his glory, and so will I with them now and then when I see him. We were taught those words by somebody who is now with them. This was, uh, Scott Baker wrote this song. And I'm just curious, how many of you heard him sing it in person in this room? All right, so look around. That's a number of people, you can put your hands out, heard him sing it in person, and I remember right after he died, the first time we sang this song, this really hit me. And for two reasons, I brought it up. One was, you know, it's so easy to get stuck in the, in the and you can uh, switch Chase over to the X, get us started there. We can get stuck in just making it through the week, that we forget about the past and forget what future lies ahead of us. And our worship leader who led us in that is now doing Singing with the angels, you know, so that's what's ahead of us. We don't want to lose that. And also, for sake of this discussion, Acts 15, it's the Jerusalem Council. It happens about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, about the same distance from the time the last time you guys heard Scott Baker sing it, and we sang this song today. So, we're not talking about a whole bunch of time that has passed, and that is one of the beauties of the scripture that we have is that there's not a whole bunch of time passes here and we can have confidence that they could remember things that like Jesus talked about just like we can remember things that happened um, just a few decades ago so we're just going to go through this text I have a couple other references but I won't put them up on the screen just to keep it simple and focused and it starts um it says and when they had come to Jerusalem they were received by the church And the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and said, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So what um, this is, Acts 15, Acts 14 talks about Paul. Uh, He was had some successful ministry happen. He's in Antioch right before this happened. Um, Right before the successes, he had a few rough times, like one of the times he gets stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. So um, it was a difficult time, but then it was a really fruitful time. And it says that in uh, some of the believers who were Pharisees went up to where he was, which is maybe 250 miles away, and started teaching that people needed to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. So that's the spark. So imagine being Paul, and it says there was a sharp, dis, you know, dispute among them, being in the middle of a really great movement. I mean, they paid the price. He's left for dead, comes back around. Churches are starting. It seems like a really fruitful time, and then these teachers show up, and these are believers of the Pharisee sect, and. He's in these sharp disputes and he realizes he's gotta stop what he's doing and go deal with this. And this isn't a Zoom call. This is a 250 mile, 500 mile round trip if he wants to come back to where he is. And a lot of time and energy to deal with this dispute. So the idea in bringing it up is that I really want you to look at it, Where I'll touch on the, the core components involved in the discussion for sure. But the main thing is looking at how they went about it. These are the, the people that were first trying to live out their faith after Jesus left. And so for us as believers, we can learn some things about the way they went through deciding which course of action they were going to take. So the primary purpose is to look at how they went about it and touch on some of the core concepts as we pass through. So as we look into the passage i picked up four ways that they discerned what was the right because there's a huge disagreement here i mean think about it, what he's been doing with the gentiles and all of a sudden now these guys are proposing that they've got to go back and follow the whole law of moses which was time consuming complicated jerusalem centered there was a lot to it this is no small fork in the road for the church And they're both groups of believers, and that's key. Usually when the Pharisees are mentioned, we're not thinking of them as believers. So these are Pharisees who believe, who really believe. Four kind of areas of discernment that that I picked up as we went through this. One of them is experience. We're going to hear them talk about discerning what's the right way to believe and the right way to go through experience. The other one's the scripture. Another one is cultural understanding. This one's a little fog here but it's definitely there and then agreement with the Holy Spirit and we're going to see how they majored on the majors and minored on the minors and that's a key point so I tell this story I titled this story you may be right but you may be wrong and um, I heard it I'll just tell it so there was a guy uh, who's a conference speaker in a major cities um, st- something with trains either like where we were in Chicago or in New York anyway he does his conference And it's on parenting, the biblical, how to parent, how to raise children. So a very successful, you know, packed out Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, the whole thing, you know, goes to a church and teaches people talking, waiting to talk to you afterwards. You know, people are really getting it, all that kind of stuff. So he's on a roll. He's on the train. He's on the train, starting to come down. And there's a guy across the aisle who's a dad with a three and a five-year-old. And the dad is kind of staring out the window. And the kids are climbing everywhere. I mean, they're just like Banging into people, you know, just climbing up—it's not safe. It's disturbing, and the dad is just staring out the window. And he just feels himself inside. He's just like, oh, "I can't. I got. I got to say something, sir." He says, "You have got to control your children. You, you have to realize that you are the parent. You are the one responsible." And he kind of went into a speech, and you know, he'd practiced all weekend, so he's—he was, he was really good. And you know, the rest of the trains listening, and he might have been thinking, you know. I'm salt and light. They're hearing about train up a child in the way. He goes on for a few minutes and then stops. And the guy, the dad, looks at him and he says, Sir, you're right. Um, We're on our way home from the hospital. My wife just died and I'm a little distracted. So you may be right, but you may be wrong. If that guy wanted to be a light for Jesus, I think he was wrong. He blew his chance to show the compassion of Christ. All he needed to do was start by listening. All he needed to do was say, hey, are you all right? That's all he had to do. He didn't do that. He had a speech. He had his monologue. he It was his key topic, and it was the thing that he thinks about, and so as soon as he saw that it was needed in society, bam, he launched into his monologue, but I don't know that he represented Jesus. So as well as he could have you know so so that's the idea you may be wrong you may be right so as we go you can go to the next one chase um and with that one hold on, my left hand doesn't work as well for this job so as you look into this passage it then it says we're on verse six and it says apostles and elders came together to consider this matter and the first thing i want to note is uh elders are present that's, a, that's kind of a new um, inclusion. So we're guessing, I'm guessing we're 18, 20 years into the Christian body, you know, growing maturity. So there's, uh, there's presbytery Presbyterian, they're their elders. It's a new term, so there must have been non, probably non-apostles, people that had developed in the faith that are leaders. And they're coming together to consider this matter and to, to talk about it. And when there had been much dispute, so it's okay to disagree as Christians, Peter rises up and he says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And in the Greek, it has more kind of in the early days. So the early days were only, you know, not more than 20 years earlier. But he's 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 drawing his argument back a little bit into history, of of even if it's recent history. And he's talking about what happened in Acts 10, where he gets called to go to Cornelius' house and and eating with the Gentiles and eating the food they ate was something that was just repulsive to him probably culturally but also forbidden in his mind and yet he's called to do it and so that's why he's saying by my mouth I'm the one that actually you know you guys just remember I was the one who got foot number one in the door here on this kind of thing and he just reminds him of that and in this phrase there's um in verse eight it says uh God who knows the heart in my version, but in the Greek, it's it's a compound word, um, and it's heart-knowing God. And I thought, that's a good thing to remember, that we have a heart-knowing God. That's the kind of God I want. And I'm glad we have a being in the universe who is a heart-knowing God, but I am not that being. So when there's a dispute or a disagreement, I can't I can try to it'll happen in a in a dispute as you hit one level then sometimes it can go to another level of judging people's motives or you're just saying that because of this or that we're not heart-knowing beings God is the only heart-knowing being and I'm gonna leave that up to him so when there's a dispute we've got to stop at a level that starts judging the heart so we get this picture that Peter ties it in. He's the first one up. And this is clearly an argument by experience. He's, he's really talking about this is what happened to me. This is why I think what I think about this issue. So um, he recognizes and he elevates the importance of the Holy Spirit being given to them. Remember, that's kind of new. It's not something they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years to, to read about. It hasn't been long, really, since Pentecost in human terms, and so they're figuring some of this out too, but the Holy Spirit is a big part of what they do. All right, um, Chase Flipper over there. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So this concept is Peter still talking? Um, he says, "Why do you test God by putting this yoke on?" Now, these two concepts are huge concepts. And Paul, we don't hear from Paul describing it. Most of you will be thinking into Romans now. Um, you might be thinking into Galatians too about the law. But and I'm I'm guessing Paul probably talked about those things, or at least some form of this argument. We don't hear it from him, but Peter is, is, is focused on this tradition, this bearing this yoke, and I want to try to get you in. We'll, as we go through this dialogue, we, uh, we hear from Peter, we hear from Paul, and then James stands up, and they're all kind of on the line of, thinking, of explaining the side of why we should make it easier for the gentles, Gentiles to be included. And let's just remember, most of us in the room, here would be Gentiles. I mean, as best I can tell, my people were Celtic. So, I would have been on the Gentile side of this discussion. And so, try to go with me on this. Imagine you're in the council, and you're hearing this stuff, only you've been arguing the other side for a while. Like, you're one of the Pharisees uh, arguing, because I think they have a legitimate point. So, Peter's up there, and this is what he says. This is Luke's summary of what he says. I was sure it was more. But imagine two of these guys kind of sitting next to each other, and um, they're hearing him go to test God. And, and one of them, Joe, leans over, and he says, um, Frank, you got to stand up and say something. I mean, test God by doing what he said? And, I mean, God's pretty clear about the obedience thing. And Frank says, hush, Joe. Remember, um, we were on the wrong side of this whole thing when it mattered two decades ago. And and, and Joe says, still, you've got to say something, Frank. Shh, Frank says, that's the rock up there. Do you, you know who's talking? That's Peter, the rock. And Joe says, I know, but but didn't Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? I mean, the rock can be wrong. Say something. So, Here's what they might have said. It is not in there. We don't get anything, but I'm filling it out in the room. If I were on that side, I would be saying things like this. I would be saying, what about the temple? I mean, what about the feast? What about the sacrifices? I mean, these are things God set up. I mean, what are, you, are you wiping all that out? I mean, let's just think practically. We, the temple's in the best shape it's been ever, I mean, look at it. We work, My cousin's been working on that thing for decades. And you're just saying we don't need it anymore? And I'm not equating liberty with the temple. I just want to be clear about that. But we have lived in a town where we've been here since 95. I mean, that thing's been going up like something right in the middle of us, cranes and things. We've seen it built up. The temple was being built up during the lifetimes of these guys. And so it was a Pretty impressive thing. Jesus used it. The disciples were using it. They might these guys back to their argument said, "Well, do we not want to use that?" At I, I, the practical business strategist in, in me would be thinking, "Why not use it?" I mean, the feasts. Jesus died on Passover weekend. I mean, he clearly chose that. It's got to matter. the The next feast is Pentecost and. And all these people come to Jerusalem. The city is already ready to handle them, like restaurants and lodging. I mean, are we just ditching that? I think of the conferences we could do. I mean, remember in Acts 2? Remember? The Holy Spirit came here then, and people from all nations were there. Like, why are we messing with any of it? Bring them all. Let's keep going, let's go deeper into the Jewish tradition. So there's an argument on the other side. We don't know that much of what it was, but my point that I want to make is this was a meaningful discussion. This was something that was back and forth, and I, I doubt they said what I said, but my point is they said something, something along the lines of no, 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 no. Your experience and your vision and all that doesn't line up with Scripture. And we want to stop and and talk about it. And there's real benefit whenever we have a dispute and we can dig into scripture. It's a rich, worthwhile experience, no matter what side you come out on. So and he talked about this yoke idea. And I want to pause here in our historical discussion to just put something out um, to us. That yoke, are we putting a yoke on ourselves, or on those around us that they can't bear. That's just something to consider and something to bring before the Lord. And a yoke would be a set of expectations that you just can't bear, and as a matter of fact, the people around you can't bear, and if you ask the people around you, they would wish that you didn't make yourself bear it because you can't. So that yoke concept right in the middle of it we are passing on concepts of what it means to follow God, and we are following a stream of thought, and it is good to stop and evaluate why we do that, where that came from, and are we able to bear it. Okay, so um, Chase, you can, you can do the next one too. All right, so then um, the multitude kept silent, and listen to Barnabas and Paul. So now it's Barnabas and Paul's turn. And they declare how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And then they had, when they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written. So you have um, an interesting word Uh, verse 12 and verse 13 talks about them becoming silent so there was some order there Uh, learning how to speak and then learning how to listen is key to this so you see a little order back and forth doesn't mean there weren't strong passions doesn't mean there weren't clear points but there were there was some back and forth and he's they talk about miracles and wonders now it doesn't show Paul and Barnabas quoting scripture probably Luke didn't include it in there but he's saying he's talking about experience again. And that's a legitimate framework for understanding why you believe what you believe. It should fit into all the other four, but it should be part of it. Experience is part of it. And I bet you if I asked, some of you in the room have have experienced something that would be supernatural. And you've had the experience of maybe sharing it, knowing that, It seems like half the people are thinking, yeah, I don't know if that really happened. But God still moves supernaturally. And that is what Paul and Barnabas talked about, miracles and wonders. They are part of our history. And I would argue that they can be part of our present as well. We shouldn't discount them if we hear about God moving that way. So uh, then James leads them into Scripture. So we talked, um, and again, this is what Luke shared. Uh, Peter and Paul and Barnabas talk about experience. And then, and then um, the next slide, they go into the prophets. It's Amos chapter 9. And this is what James chooses to put forth, and so we'll read it. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, I and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the gentiles who are called by my name says the lord who does all these things there's a lot of first person pronouns in here so we got to remember whose whose church it is and who's doing the main things jesus that we got to keep in mind and when you're you know you're looking at james you got to remember who james is uh James is the pillar of that church and he's trying to lead and bring it into focus now. And he's sh- he's shifting the discussion from the uh, from the experience into the scripture and pointing out that this has been something that God has wanted to unfold for a long time. Now, again, back to your Pharisee group, they might have been thinking exactly. I mean, the tabernacle of David that look at it. I mean, we're, there it is. Exactly. So I, there probably was further discussion after this. And one thing, I, well, we won't go there, but they'll come to conclusion. And the letter is sent out, and it seems like the matter's closed. Acts 21, James and Paul talk again. And it's clear that there's still some things James has a little bit more to say. So I want to encourage you, if you enter disagreements over how Christians should live, you might not solve it all in that argument or that writing or whatever. Neither did the early church. But doesn't mean we need to br- don't need to bring clarity on it. So then, um, so let's go over to the, to the last one, uh, the next one there. Um, and it picks up on verse 19, 18. It says, known to God from eternity in all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So not trouble them, not bother them. Now, I don't know exactly why he did this. Maybe it seems, again, I'm not arguing with the scripture, but had I been there with slightly different viewpoint, I don't know if I would have focused, picked my three things or the sexual immorality I get, but the, the other three seem to refer to food, right? I might have picked, like, some other things to keep and emphasize out of God's instructions to the nation of Israel. They seem to be centered around things to do with food. I get them, but... I'm wondering if they're not a little more cultural, maybe even for the Jews who might be present. So now we're going to talk about just a little bit of how culture impacts the way we view what the right way to believe is. So a couple of my stories, um, I I hope they all work. But um, if they don't, come up and say something, because I don't mean to emphasize the wrong thing in it. But we all have cultural glasses, we see things through our culture, and we think it makes sense. So um, uh, there was a wise Christian who straightened me out on this with a story about a guy who came from another country. To uh, They had to be evacuated right away, so they hadn't planned on coming to the States. They get, he and his family end up in uh, the States the first night. The dad goes out to a restaurant. because I want to check out how these people eat. Um, he goes, it's meatloaf and mashed potatoes, Could have been a little spicier, but by and large, it's pretty good. But he ate with his hand like he always did at home, and um, people looked at him a little bit, but he didn't really notice too much of that. But he goes home, and his wife and kids say, "Well, how's the food?" Said, "Food was fine, kind of bland, but it was fine." Um, But these people are unsanitary, so we're not eating in restaurants. And the kids are, "Why? What? What is it? Well, they don't eat with their hand. They eat by taking twisted pieces of metal." that have been in the mouths of thousands of strangers, and they just put it right in their mouths. So we're not doing the restaurant thing. And, and the kids are like, really? I mean, do they clean it? I, he said, I think there's a, like a, a, a teenage boy comes around with a tray, and he carries it through one door, and, and it comes out. And I think they think it's, it's clean after that. So no restaurants. Cultural glasses. We kind of look at things um, differently. So, you know, when, <laughs> now go to the other side, and I, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think how to best tell this one. All right, I didn't ask my wife beforehand about this. one. So, but there are cultural things. That um, when we first started dating, we met in Chicago, Kirsten's from Ohio, I am from Baltimore. So um, the second time she came to meet my family was in the summer, in August. And my mom was a really strong believer, strong teacher, and had this great group of women friends who loved to be together. They were really engaging. And they loved to study the scripture and talk about the books they were reading and all. So Kirsten really liked them the first time she met some of them. She comes. uh, I pick her up at the airport. Uh, I come to our house and everyone's out back so I walk around the house and a bunch of the women are back in the backyard eating and they yell for Kirsten come on over so I go into the house and then I came back out of the house and for the first time I saw my culture differently because these women first of all my wife was a vegetarian from the Midwest these women are eating crabs So, if you have, how many have seen people eat crabs before, before I go into it? So, in our culture, completely normal was a picnic bench, newspaper, a bucket at the end, and a wooden hammer, and you are just whacking away. Now, to Kirsten, these looked like spiders from the Chesapeake Bay, And even I spent a lot of time on the Chesapeake Bay and didn't particularly like the thought of eating something that ate what was on the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay. But that's what these things did. It looked just like the creepy things that God forbids the Israelites to eat. I mean, so they're just whacking away, ripping them off, you know, breaking them in half. And Kirsten is not sitting at the table with the women. She's just sort of there. And my dad rescues her and brings her over to the grill and I think made roast vegetables. So I saw my culture through different eyes. And I don't know how they exactly made their food, the Gentiles, but that might have grossed out the Jews. But if they did enough of it, it probably seemed normal to the Gentiles. So again, I'm as this decree goes out from my perspective if I'm thinking as a a Jew and that's probably more I think about it from their perspective when they send out the decree to do that I'm thinking that's pretty light you know the whole circumcision thing gets skipped which could be a relief to some of the people you know they just talk about this which you think oh that's no big deal well to them it might have been a big deal and think there might have been arguing on the backside of that. Or do you really? I mean, do we need to do that? I mean, didn't uh, Peter's vision say rise, kill, and eat, and and uh, that and don't call anything common that I call clean? And they could have. And one thing to remember: uh, it's 50 A.D., so there wouldn't have been a, maybe a little bit, but probably no written text. They weren't quoting, uh, turning all of them with their Bible, arguing, you know, Matthew or when Jesus talks about you know, purifying foods. It's the heart, the stomach. It just gets eliminated, all that stuff. They probably wouldn't have been quoting that, but they might have because they would have heard him say it and people in the room would have been talking about it. But even that would have been different. So I, um, I'm i talking about coming into the Christian culture a little bit here. As most of you know, I didn't grow up with the culture. Uh, I didn't become a believer till I was 20. So I came into it. And um, And some of it was just different, to be honest. And I could see certain things that Christians did throwing off my friends. Now, some of the things I didn't do, like not drinking, they got. I mean, they appreciated the designated driver. In fact, they found it kind of interesting. I remember being packed in a Volkswagen bug with, like, several drunk guys coming from the bar to back home. And we had to go through a police checkpoint. And they suddenly got locked in on the breathalyzer test, wanting to see it come up 0.00. And as only drunk guys can do, they locked in on it. And they began to bounce in rhythm and chant as we were in line waiting for the test. Give him the test. Give him the test. You know, so as I got up there, window down, the police just laughed and waved me through. But not drinking, that made sense a little bit. They didn't want to do it, but they didn't mind me not getting drunk with them anymore. But if I'd have said we can't do crabs anymore, they would think that's just taking it too far. So for some of the Gentile believers, getting back and talking about this food thing might have still been an issue. I want you to just get into the moment of seeing how this kind of thing played out for people trying to live out their faith and then for living out the faith in the communities that they were in. So culture can do it. Um, they would have understand, uh, like I'll give you another one. There, I was speaking in another country and I had been there uh, a couple times and I spoke in the churches and I noticed that the leaders, when they spoke about something important, they would do this. They would roll their eyes, they'd look at the wall and the more I uh, realized when they talked, they did this all the time and they never ever looked out at the crowd I did that all the time. I mean, we were taught to speak that way and engage with the crowd. Look, if I spent this whole sermon going like this, you know, what would you think? Something's wrong with that guy. Well, where I was teaching, they thought something's wrong with that guy because I was looking right at him, and I, I think it was too—it was wrong for me to do that. But to me, it was just normal. And, and I remember the first time I noticed, thinking, oh, maybe they're not doing it right. No, I wasn't doing it right. People in that culture, if you looked at them during the sermon, they would accidentally think you were talking about them. So I just accidentally looked at Keith. I didn't look at you. I looked at Keith. But I'm not saying, Keith, you're culturally failing. But that was something that they may have picked up had I looked at them. So we need to understand how what we live out impacts the culture around them. And and this concept that we are um, we are putting a yoke forward that people are supposed to follow. I would just encourage you to be thinking about why you believe what you believe. We have uh, cultural things that come with being Jesus followers, and we need to consider them in light of scripture, in light of experience. One of them I noticed here was um, when we got here in the 90s, Kirsten had the idea to do a swing dance. We had a blast. But that was a little bit pushing the envelope, you know, for a little bit at that time to have dance and dance in church, if I'm remembering correctly. Well, the father-daughter dance on Friday night when I was out here, last song, that dance floor was packed. And all these dads are out there with kids. The dancing, to me, wasn't that big of a deal. I remember going to weddings, uh, first Christian weddings, and thinking, okay, I get to know alcohol. That was okay. I mean, I'd seen enough people do dumb and stupid stuff. Say stupid stuff when drunk—that you wouldn't want that. But no dancing—I had no grit for that, because most of my dancing, I knew there was some, you know, dancing you shouldn't do. But most of it was kind of jumping around, you know, with your friends. It wasn't, and that wasn't in part of Christian weddings. I remember thinking, okay, um, there are cultural things that we may have passed down that we need to consider and why we do what we do as we head into the next generation. An encouragement for us is. We're post-pandemic. We're going to get to do some stuff. We are going to have to figure out how we're going to do church. There are some things like um, membership that got a little muddy during the last two years. Ministry team is a big thing we did. One of the things was the parking team. We don't don't need that anymore. We've got to think through what membership looks like as a church. We're about to build a church building. What do we think about church? Why do we do what we do? the church is the people, but we're going to build a building. So we need to be able to talk about that. And the other big thing that I've only been an elder since May, and most of the energy we had the focus on the the building, Mark and Kathy's transition, and how to make it through the pandemic. But before that, I mean, and Jim, you'll have to remind us, but I think it was three years ago or so, you started the spiritual gift studies, and, um, and also delving into the role of women. And so um, those are things that, As the elders get a break between these logistics, we're going back into the very beginning of Acts. The first thing uh, when Peter stands up, he says, I will pour out my spirit on the sons and daughters. And so the elders are really taking a look at what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to pour out on us? And what does the sons and daughters mean? Like, What does it mean for the men and what does it mean for the women? And we are going through a process of looking at the scripture, looking at our experience, looking at the cultural issues. And then in our elders' meeting, and Jim leads us through this, we speak and then we pause and pray and invite the Lord to be part of it. We want that agreement with the Holy Spirit. We encourage you to be part of that discussion. Um, Jim usually sits up here. Joe Tanian's usually here. Kenny and Mary Ellen, they're usually working and moving around. Jay and Sandy Gray are usually here. We have the Women's Council. Dee Britt usually sits over here. You can talk. We want to have the dialogue. If you want to write out what you want to say, it's not saying you can't send an email. You still can. We'd prefer that you, even if you wrote it out just for yourself, come bring it with you, and we'll read it together because it's about community. It's about coming to a deeper understanding of what the Lord wants us to do next. And we want to base it on the core truths of Scripture, major on the majors, the resurrection, the hope of glory in the future. We want to recognize the current situation, and we want to be sensitive. But we need to move forward. What are we going to pass on to that next generation? Are there things about following Jesus that we want to strengthen like Uh, We started jam class up again, and I'm the guy leader along with Neil and Elaine Leach and Shelly Scranton back there. It was a pure joy for me to see my 10-year-old sitting at the wood stove memorizing her jam verses just like Emma did 12 years ago. That is a yoke, a positive yoke we want to pass on. Are there other yokes that we as Christians or church in particular do not want to pass on because they were difficult to bear that's where we're at so come in, involved with us get involved with us talk to us afterwards one of the key words in the women issue is silence and i i i'm not a greek scholar but i do read through the greek before i teach in the new testament for flow of thought and one of the words that popped up twice was that same word for silence is the word used in reference to women being silent. Same Greek word. So I would invite you, if you want to get in the water, look into that word. But dialogue with us. This is something we want to do together with you. So I'm going to pray. Otto, are you going to come up and share? And then Richie and Julie, if you can come up and be ready to um, to sing. Lord, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for the rich uh, understanding we get of real humans trying to live out their faith that we can learn. Our job is not to go back and try to live as if the next year is A.D. 55. We are supposed to live as if the next year is A.D. 2023, and we want to live in the time that we're in. We want to root our decisions going forward based on the scripture, based on the experience on the shoulders of the apostles and the prophets that went before us, Lord. And we have centuries of Christians who have sorted through these issues long before we face them, Lord. And we ask that you would grant us wisdom and grant us joy and hope, that we would have our hope set on you, our faith in you, in Christ alone, that we would be joyful servants, that we would anticipate you doing good things In the current future, the week ahead, the month ahead, the year ahead. And in the long-term future. Because we have reason for hope and we don't want to forget. In Jesus' name, amen.